Mark, I noticed in your prayer for Brett and Anna, you didn't pray that they would stay here. Uh, as a dad and a grandpa, uh, to hear the uh, emotion, but the desire for God to continue to use them and bless them, and we pray the same with you. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word this morning. <clears throat> Begin reading in verse 1 of Matthew 22. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. This morning, we're looking at another parable that Jesus gives on the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you want to know what the kingdom is like, here's a story. This is similar to the parables that we looked at last week. And there we looked at two sons who, one obeyed, said he would go into his father, or at least said he would go into his father's vineyard and, and didn't. The other son who said he wouldn't go and he did, We looked at the parable of the tenants, of a master who had a house and a vineyard, and the tenants would not send the fruit that was expected, and and yet killed the servants that came to retrieve it. And Jesus' response to them, foretelling of him who was rejected and yet becomes the cornerstone, Jesus again speaks of the kingdom of heaven, as he often has in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes offering, bringing with him, as the king does with his kingdom, Jesus comes with his kingdom. Into the kingdom of men, he brings the kingdom of God. The kingdom comes with Christ, is initiated and offered by Christ. Jesus says, here is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. As we began reading our 
parable this morning in verse number one of chapter 22, we see that the wedding feast is going to be taking place as a king is going to give a feast for his son who is to be married. We never hear from the son or the bride in all of the planning and preparations, but we hear of the king who sends out his servants, a a king who has uh, much resources at his disposal, sends out his servants to invite the guests, remind them of the invitation. But this wedding feast is one that has been planned. Invitations have already been sent out previous to what we find here in the beginning of this parable. As the invitations have already gone out, the servants are calling on those who have been invited already. The feast is ready, the king says. The time has come. So let us celebrate together this joyous occasion of a wedding, of a union between the king's son and his bride. These marriage celebrations would typically last for several days. But the focus here is on this initial meal and the beginning of celebration. It is a time of celebrating and feasting. In those days, social events like this would have been a means of honor, bestowing honor on those who were invited and bestowing greater honor on certain guests over others so that Jesus even speaks of a wedding later on in the Gospels and says, if you're invited to one, don't presume to give yourself the best seat in the house. Because of the way in which this seating works, the honorable seats are in a particular place. Don't give yourself the best seat. Allow the guest or the, excuse me, the host to move you up because you otherwise might be moved down into a place of greater shame because of your presumption. In these social settings, there's a lot of honor or shame, shame at not being invited, honor at being invited and What a tremendous honor it would have been to be invited by the king of the land into this marriage feast, to be able to experience such closeness and intimacy with the king and his family and his royal house. An incredible honor. The king has already gone to much trouble in preparation. He's killed an oxen, fattened calves. Everything is ready. He's made the Costco run. He's filled the freezers. Everything is bursting at the seams with food and drink for his guests. You can imagine a lot of money and time and preparation and preparing with caterers or those who are going to be serving. But all of a sudden, the honored guests, the ones who were shown honor by being invited, decide they're not going to come. You try telling that to any bride that all of the guests who were invited to her wedding, of which months of preparation and thousands of dollars have gone into preparing for this day, are not going to show up. Minor detail, right? The guests had already accepted the initial invitation, but when it came time for the actual feast, they decided they had better things to do and are going back on their word to attend. They might have said, No, thanks. You know, this is a busy time of year. I've got a lot of things to do. I just purchased something big, and I need to spend some time with it. Actually, in Luke 14, you get some of these examples, as most likely Luke is recording the same parable, although there's 
quite substantial. There's a lot of similarities between them. And, and there, the wedding guests give excuses as to why they're not going to come. One of them said, I bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Excuses, excuses. They, by their excuses and going back on their word and the initial invitation, having already been accepted, are putting the host in a very awkward and shameful position. However, those who were invited shamed the host by not coming. And those who were initially shamed by not being invited are now given the place of honor. The guests who didn't show and weren't going to come could have cared less about the king, about his honor, or keeping their word. Verse 5 begins by saying, they paid no attention and went off. Literally, they have no care for, the text would be saying. They neglected. They were unconcerned. They're not coming. Worse than that, some of the invited guests have gone so far as not only to be rude and deny the invitation after already accepting it, but they go so far as to take the servants who come to remind them, the feast is ready, come, celebrate. And they take those servants the text says that they harass them, abuse them, and murder them. These servants are coming to tell them of honor, of coming because the feast is ready. It's time to celebrate. And you often see the sign that says, don't shoot the messenger. And here in this instance, they did. Things escalate really quickly, right? We were talking about a wedding celebration Guests not keeping their word about coming to the wedding, and all of that is rudeness, honor, and shame. And now all of a sudden, we're talking about dead servants, murder, abuse, harassment. And as you can imagine, the king, like the landowner in the parable last week, responds with heated anger, sends troops to destroy those who killed his servants and burn their city. Now, we've all heard of bridezillas before, right? But this is a father of the groom that you would not want to mess with. The intriguing part here is that the king is not that the king is killing those who murdered his servants, because that's to be expected. Life for life, it's justice. You read the Old Testament law, if you intentionally take a life, then your own life shall be taken from you. No, what's intriguing is that these are most likely, these who were invited and who refused and who murdered his servants are most likely his own people. One commentator says, it is surely likely that a king would have invited his own subjects to the wedding and that if any of the subjects or the guests were from elsewhere, they certainly would not have lived all in a single city which was not part of his kingdom. If the people are the king's subjects, then let us deduce from that that the cities he is going to burn are his cities. Now, this could be a reference to Jesus speaking in just a few years, maybe a few decades. There's going to be a city central to the Israelites, the city of Jerusalem, that will be burned and destroyed. 
in A.D. 70, Jerusalem will be overtaken and destroyed by its enemies. Jesus, in this parable, calls it their city, not the king's city. As the city is burned, and those wicked guests who weren't going to come, who had done such grievous wrongs, are, are put to death and destroyed, Jesus refers to it as their city. This, the city is no longer God's city or the king's city, but theirs. The community as a whole is implicated in their rebellion and in its, in its punishment. They have walked away from God and His ways. God promised Israel in the Old Testament that if they did not keep His laws, that if they transgressed His covenant, that He would bring evil upon them. And he would destroy them from off his good land that he had given to them. You remember, maybe back in Genesis chapter 12, and in several other places, God gives a covenant and reminds Abraham of a covenant that he gives to the people of Israel, to the offspring of Abraham, which will number more than the stars in the sky. And he promises three things, and that is land, seed, and blessing. The land being the promised land, all of it. Seed being more descendants than can be numbered, more than the grains of sand, and blessing, that they will be a blessing, and that they will be a source of blessing for other people. All throughout the Old Testament, those first five books of the Pentateuch, you begin to see Israel going into the land, taking over the land. In the book of Joshua, you see all the conquests of the people of Israel, so that in Joshua chapter 23... It says, and now I am about to go to the way of all the earth. And you know in your heart and souls, all of you. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament. Joshua 23, verse 14. You know in your heart and souls, all of you, Joshua says, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Land, seed, blessing. God has given to Israel all that He has promised to them. What a good and faithful God. A God who has lavished blessing on a people who didn't deserve it. It doesn't take much reading through the Old Testament to see how often they complain or go looking for other gods to worship. But, verse 15 of Joshua 23, Joshua follows up immediately and says, But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord our God, which He commanded you, and go and serve other idols and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given to you. In Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah states that God will even use Israel's enemies to do this. Is Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. 
And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. In speaking this parable, the king comes out in wrath against his own people, willing to burn his own city, to be able to make a mark of this is unacceptable. You are wicked and you have transgressed my laws as the king. So he destroys them. That's justice. Life for life burns their city. And God in the Old Testament says he will do the exact same. His love for his people and his faithfulness to the promises he has made to them require that he be faithful and just to punish sin. So what does the king do? Cancel the wedding, right? All of the guests have said, no, we're not going to come anymore. Many of the guests have been destroyed and the city burned. New servants come and they invite new guests. In Israel, you can imagine, in this story as being the people who have done this and rejected God are asking for a mulligan. If you've ever played golf, you've probably asked for a mulligan. I don't know how many you're allowed to ask. I exceed the limit every time I play. The ball's not supposed to go into the trees or the weeds or to the backyard of somebody's house. Can I get a do-over, a mulligan? Evidently, a mulligan is named after a guy whose last name was Mulligan. I would like something more honorable to be named after myself. I don't know about you. But can I get one of him? Can I get a do-over? Israel's asking for a do-over. Can we get a mulligan? Can we have another chance? But the king, by this time, the feast is ready. The need is urgent to gather new guests. The time is now. The food is prepared. The doors will close. He sends out the servants to go find guests. The guests who were previously invited are found to be not worthy. And that sounds harsh. They were busy. They had other things going on. They were disinterested in a wedding feast. But the difference is the one who is inviting them. This was no regular Joe inviting people to a wedding, but this was the king of the land. Not only were they unwilling to come, but they had other more important things to do. They had ignored the request of the king. They had assaulted and murdered his servants. They were indeed unworthy to attend his wedding feast. Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. The king's peace in this sense, instance would return to him and deploys new servants with the same mission to a different set of people. The question is, will the results be the same? So the servants go out once again, this time not to those who already have an invitation, beautifully stamped and written in calligraphy maybe. These guests were shamed originally by not being invited to the wedding. The servants go out into the streets, inviting and gathering people. The servants are successful. Those invited are willing to come. 
These new guests might not be the best of society. Even Jesus states that they are both bad and good, but they are willing. The others might have been more high society, but not willing. In Luke's recording of this same story, the king tells the servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled, blind and lame. The replacement guests were not the ones originally invited. So you can imagine there's a sense of shame in that. And yet, however, they are willing to come. And it is they who end up at the wedding. It is they who feast with the king. It is they who drink his wine and eat his meat. It is they who celebrate the wedding of the king's son. They were invited because there was room There was food and drink that was ready for them. They were invited because they were willing, because the king wanted his house to be full and joyous and full of celebration. And it was. It says the wedding feast was full with guests. The king wanted a full hall, so he had invited guests to come. Those he first invited refused to come and did not honor him in return. With the honor he showed them by inviting them, So after they refused, he did not beg and plead with them to reconsider. They got no mulligan, nor did he cancel the wedding feast. Instead, he brought in others who otherwise would have been looked over and rejected, never deemed worthy to enter the feast, and he gave them a place at his table. Those who were initially shamed, either by their own status or because of a disability or deformity, because they did not receive an earlier invitation, were later honored by their willingness to come and the king's invitation. Have you ever been somewhere where you felt like you didn't belong? Maybe you walked into a really fancy restaurant, didn't know it was a fancy restaurant, and immediately you look around and all of the fellows are wearing sport coats. And you in your plaid shirt and jeans, shoes that aren't buffed and clean, you didn't know men wore sport coats to dinner. You didn't know that certain places had a dress code. Maybe you showed up instead at a horse auction. And you showed up in Nike tennis shoes and a ball cap instead of cowboy boots and a 10-gallon hat, feeling really out of place real quick, right? Everybody can see right away from you and what you're wearing. It's your first time outside the city when you stroll into that place. Now, if you walk into a situation like one of those all by yourself, if you're anything like me, you're likely to find the closest exit and get out of there. But if you're with other people or you look around and actually find everyone else is dressed just like you are, You feel as though you don't belong in a place this fancy or in a place that's outside of your comfort zone, a different situation, different cultural place. But you look around and everybody looks similar to you, dressed somewhat the same as you. The shame that you would have felt is relaxed, not out of place immediately comfortable to ask questions about manners or protocol in an unfamiliar situation. 
Imagine here are all these guests. They shouldn't be there. They were not originally invited. And yet here they are. They walk into the palace, into the wedding feast, all together. Maybe they're brought in because they're lame. Maybe they're held by the hand going in because they're blind. They're all guests. All of the guests are second tier, if we can say that. And yet what comfort they must have. All of them seeing people just as unlikely and undeserving to be there just as they are. Sweet relief. No one to mock you. If you call an hors d'oeuvre by the wrong word, or you turn your nose up at the pickled herring, or refuse calamari because it looks like it's still swimming in the ocean. The attendants, the new guests are both good and bad. But evidently, without losing too much in the details, this picture of being at the wedding feast is not equal to eternal salvation. Now, why would we say that? You look at verse 11. And following, when the king comes in, there's a man in the wrong garment. Now, this isn't as though you're wearing fancy robes and everyone is in their Sunday best necessarily. But somehow this person stands out. So that when the king comes into the feast in a time of celebration, his eyes and attention are drawn to this person who's wearing the wrong clothes. It seems strange to me right off the bat. I expect everybody to be in the wrong clothes with this crowd. No one to be dressed as nice and as fancy as those who were originally invited. Jesus, the king, asked the man how he got in here with a garment like that, not wearing the proper attire. You notice that the man doesn't answer. He's speechless. And subsequently... In what seems to be an extremely harsh manner, the king takes that guest and he says, throw this person out. And it doesn't just say outside the gate, but into outer darkness. We're we're now beginning to think there's something more to this than just you wore the wrong outfit. You need to go outside and change your clothes. And then it says where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which... Reminds us of other places we've read that same phrase that alludes to hell and eternal destruction. The clothing that was expected at a wedding was not a special garment, but decent, clean clothes, such as anyone should have had available. In that case, in this man's case, the fault is that even though he was invited to a royal wedding, he had not gone home to change into his clean best clothes. To turn up in ordinary, dirty clothes was an insult to the host. He had the clothes. It wasn't as though he was asking for something that he couldn't afford. Go out and buy yourself a three-piece suit and bring it in. Go home and get your clean clothes. I remember the very first wedding I officiated was at a church in Oregon, outside of Eugene, sort of in a rural community with a lot of horses and a lot of similar to this area. I asked the church secretary at the time, who had been there for longer than I had been alive, uh, what was appropriate for a minister to wear to a wedding in this area. She surprised me. I was used to going to weddings wearing a suit and a tie. At every wedding, probably that I'd been to growing up, all the men wore suit and ties. 
She looked at me and she said, a new pair of Wranglers ought to do it. New pair. Everybody in that area except me had Wranglers. And you best wear your cleanest ones. In every society, there is a code of ethics, an honoring of a host or hostess at an event like a wedding. Now, I didn't have a single pair of Wranglers at the time. So having a new pair was not likely to happen. But in every society, even in this one, there's a code of ethics. You can imagine somebody showing up straight from work. Yeah, you're glad that they showed up, but they could have washed their hands and put on a clean shirt at least, right? The man belongs to the second group of invitees. Those who have just been gathered to fill the house because the first set had refused to come. And yet he does not prepare himself adequately for the occasion. His attire would not reveal he was headed to anyone's house for dinner, let alone to a royal wedding. But it could be taken for one who was working in the barn, who was still at work laboring. When the king comes in and sees this man, he recognizes the affront. The man is presupposing that he can come in any old way he wants to, that the free offer of a wedding feast requires no action on his part to show his gratitude or reveal that he is delighted to be there. The symbolism is of someone who presumes on the offer, the free offer of salvation, by assuming, therefore, that there are no obligations attached. Someone whose life belies their profession, faith without works. Entry to the kingdom of heaven may be free, but to continue in it carries conditions. His attitude is the same as the original guests, the ones who rejected the king's invitation and killed the servants. He's not willing to come in the manner expected of a wedding guest. He came as he saw fit. I'll do as I please. I know there's a standard. I know there's what's expected. I know what would honor the host. I ain't going to do it. He'll take me as I am. He'll take me in the manner that I see fit. He has come as he saw fit. He came wearing what he wanted. And he came without wanting to take the time to prepare adequately, which was the same issue with the first group of guests that were invited. Different group of people. Maybe different socioeconomic status. He was willing to come. They weren't. But his heart was the exact same as those originally invited. Jesus ends the parable with a phrase, after throwing him out into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth and judgment. In verse 14, Jesus closes with, For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called classes him with the other guests. They had all heard the gracious invitation of the royal host. They were all there because of his generosity. But Jesus sounds a warning that those who hear God's call and know of his grace must not think that a call is the same as a response. An invitation is not the same as faith. One expressing a belief in God, praying a sinner's prayer is not the same as one whose heart has been transformed and the works show, reveal a heart that has been changed by its belief. 
those who are called. Few, many are called, but few are chosen. This work of faith and works coming after is not something that the man could have done on his own. We know this to be true in salvation, that salvation is a work of God. Imagine a couple who is wanting to have a child. You have a young couple, and their desire is to have a baby, and we say that they are trying, right? And why do we say that they're trying? Well, because they are doing everything that they can to make a baby. It's grueling work, right? But try, 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 they do. And yet it's called trying because they cannot on their own actually make a baby. That is only something that God can do. That's why we speak of it as a miracle of new life, of birth. We thank God for the new life He brings to a woman's womb. A couple can try, but God can do. Many are called, but few are chosen. Israel was ones who were chosen. They were given the covenants and the promises that God had made to them, and they rejected Him. We'll look a little bit at this parable, and we'll make four applications for us this morning. The initial invitation goes out to Israel. They are God's chosen people. Of every nation in the world, He chose them. The word invite in this parable is the same word translated as called. It's four times the word is translated as invited, but in each of those, it's the same Greek word, kaleo, which we would also translate as called. Paul, later in the New Testament, will use this word, kaleo, to speak of those who have been called, the elect. He speaks of it in Romans chapter 8, where he gives sort of what's referred to as the golden chain of salvation, where everything works together for those. We know that God, uh, those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Israel was given an invitation to come and be God's people and he be their God. In that way, they're given an invitation, as Jesus will say here in this parable, a calling, an invitation. Paul's way of using it is far more the work of God in actually predestining, calling someone, making secure their salvation. Here in this, it's an invitation that the people of Israel are given, and they can reject it. And they did. So much so that they continued to go after other gods. God spoke to them in words referring to marriage as an adulterer, one who goes after a prostitute or a harlot when they reject God and His invitation to be His people and He to be their God. They disobeyed His laws, paid Him no attention. They said they would follow Him. They said they wanted life with Him. They wanted Him to be their God over and over again. Yes, we will do all that God commands. And yet by their life, they do the exact opposite. 
very similar to the guests who were initially invited to the wedding. But God does not give up and cancel the celebration. He instead invites those who were formerly left out, the Gentiles, other nations, that they might come in and enjoy the feasting, the celebration, that it might be full of people, that His kingdom would be full. And yet, even though people come, there is still a need for them to come in the right manner. God had sent Old Testament prophets to warn His people Israel about their sins. He sent His servants to remind them of His covenant, to remind them of the invitation He had extended to them, and they didn't listen to them. They rejected them. They treated them wrongly and killed them. God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, and they killed him. God sent His only Son, Jesus, to come and preach the good news of the gospel, that the Messiah had come, that the covenant was here, the kingdom was now, and they kill Him too. We hear nothing else of the King's Son in all of this story, the parable that Jesus gives. But here in this story, Jesus comes as a suffering servant, as one who willingly gives His life to call his people to himself, to remember the covenants that God has made with them, to usher in a new covenant in his own body, so that by his being killed by them, it doesn't destroy the feast and the celebration, but ushers in a completely greater celebration, one that comes by means of putting death to death, one that comes by means of coming by faith into Jesus, not by merely keeping the law as no one is able to do. Jesus will not ask us from what family background we come from, what income level we have attained, what was our social standing, what is our ethnic heritage. He won't ask us, no, but were we willing to obey Him, to follow Him, to give Him our lives. It is one thing to say we believe in Jesus, and yet quite another to actually bear fruit in following Him. The focus on this text is the urgency of the invitation of which the king goes, desiring his servants to go out again and find more guests to come. You want to be here for this wedding feast. You do not want to be left out. And you do not want to come unprepared. So four things. We look at this text. Four application for us this morning. The invitation, number one, the invitation of the kingdom goes out to everyone. The invitation of the kingdom goes out to everyone. Here in the parable, it goes out to one group. They reject it. It goes out to another group. It doesn't stop. It's not all of a sudden negated and canceled. But a faithful God keeps His promises and ushers an invitation to everyone. We give a universal distribution of the gospel to each and every person, regardless of their background or ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they seem to be out of place in a room or we seem to be out of place in their room. There is a sense of urgency and a universal distribution in a well-known text that often is preached in Mission Sunday, and I don't think will be preached next week, so we'll remind you of it today. 
Matthew 28 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The invitation of the kingdom goes out to everyone, a universal distribution, number one. And number two, not everyone will respond to the invitation and come into the kingdom. Not everyone will believe. Not everyone will come. Some will not see their need for Christ. Some will respond with excuses similar to those did, either in Luke's account or here in Matthew's account in Matthew 22. I have other things, pressing matters, business affairs. My life is so busy, I can't fit one more thing in. I don't need Jesus. I have no need for him. I don't, I'm not a sinner. I don't need to repent of my sins. Who are you to tell me? It's your truth, not mine. Keep your belief system to yourself. Not everyone will believe. Not everyone will come. Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire is that none would perish, that all would accept, that everyone would respond and come at his invitation into the kingdom, that the kingdom would be full, that the celebration would be joyous and raucous, and it will be with exactly those whom God knows, and yet not everyone will believe or come. It is helpful for us to remember that as we desire to share the gospel with everyone, or as we do share it, sometimes we don't desire to share it. I don't always desire to share it. I was greatly convicted this week and how often I can find other reasons not to share the gospel, not to talk with a neighbor, not to talk with someone else. But even when we do, to know that not everyone will respond to the invitation and come into the kingdom. That's number two. Number three, one can only come into the kingdom by the way the king has established. So even though for those who come and say, I, I, I hear the invitation to come into the kingdom of heaven, I like the sound of the invitation, I want to come into the kingdom of heaven, not be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, that doesn't in any way sound enjoyable. But one can still only come into the kingdom by the way that the king has established. A person cannot come to God for salvation, but be unwilling to give his life to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not come in and do as he pleases. One is willing to come to Jesus by faith, come into the kingdom of heaven. He does so recognizing in so doing, he loses his life and gains eternal life, gains life with Christ, which is far greater. Those who are calling the lost to the kingdom must never water down the requirements of the kingdom. Don't tell someone whatever they want to hear just to get them to pray a prayer. Don't offer something to them. If they would listen to your appeal, your evangelistic appeal, so that they know if I say yes, I get what you're offering. 
Don't cheapen God's grace by telling someone all they need to do is pray a prayer and not tell them anything about discipleship and obedience and taking up your cross and following Jesus or suffering for the kingdom's sake. Don't overpromise a person rewards or benefit just to get them to pray a prayer. Again, Matthew 28. We read earlier, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But it continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Don't stop at them just praying a prayer. Show them how to be a disciple of Jesus. Show them to follow you as you follow Christ. And number four, never stop asking the king to bring more into his kingdom. The king's desire is that the feast is full. His desire is that none would perish, that all would come to repentance. Remember, you and I can try, but God can do. Pray to the one who can do all things, because there is always hope that they will repent. Invite other servants of the king, in keeping with the analogy of the parable, to pray with you. And if all you can do is pray, which is a lot, then pray. God calls us to pray. Prayer works. And it is not slacking off in the least to come before the throne of grace and to beseech upon God for the salvation of souls. There was always a room for someone to come back. There was always a way for someone to come back in repentance. There was always hope in the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come and given his life for us and for our sins. He has saved us. For those of us who have repented of our sins and turned from them and come back to Christ, given our lives to him, he can save those others that we love or are praying for. In the same way he has redeemed us, he can open the eyes of the blind. He has given us new life. He has opened our eyes. He has made our legs straight that we might run and dance and walk in his kingdom. And he can do the same for any other that we begin to pray for and that we are desiring that they would come to salvation. The Old Testament can be full of loss and discouragement sometimes at the disobedience of Israel. But the character of our God is one who is faithful and one who is merciful. Let me close with a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning of verse 25. It says, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over, to, over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell." You might be sitting there saying, Pastor Stephen, I thought you were going to end with something encouraging from the Old Testament. In the last couple of verses, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29. 
but from there. In this place where you are utterly destroyed, worshiping other gods, doing all of these wicked and evil things, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. There is always hope. Let us continue to pray. Never asking God, never stop asking the king to bring more into his kingdom, that they would turn, seek the Lord with all of their heart, and you will find him. Let us pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for the promises that you give us in your word that remind us that you are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And on those truths of your character, we anchor our souls. Father, would you continue to, this morning, convict us. You have convicted me this week, and I needed it. That I need to be sharing the gospel. That I need to be praying that others would see their need for Christ and come to him in faith. May we continue by your grace, to be pursuing others for your kingdom. And will we be continuing to pray, never giving up the hope that you will, can and will bring them to the point of repentance. And Father, yet we know you are just and you are good. And it might not always be exactly what happens. Help us to trust in your will. And yet pray fervently glorying in the gospel that has redeemed us, that it might redeem others. Father, we ask that you would continue to build your kingdom here until you come, where we see you face to face. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.